Welcome to Open Your Eyes, a podcast about empowering each of us with the perspective and tools to grow and change. You know, just yesterday, someone asked me why I do these podcasts. And the answer? Well, I don't consider myself the best speaker or personality, but my life has been changed, been blessed by uplifting podcasts. And when I consider the time and effort that those podcasters invested in helping me, I realize this is a way for them and now me to help and serve other people. So wherever you're listening today, whether you're in the car, on your daily walk or run, or just part of your daily inspiration time, I hope today we can learn something that will help us as we strive to reach our goals and fulfill our purpose. And as always, if you like what you hear today, please share the link to this podcast with a friend, and that will help us further our mission. Let's get started. Today, I'd like to talk about effectively treating the ticks in our life. Now, most Americans can name the three largest cities in Canada without a problem, Toronto, Montreal, and Calgary. But they're unable to name Ottawa, Winnipeg, or Mississauga as other top 10 cities. For sure, most Americans are not familiar with Laval, Gatineau, or Kitchener, which are in the top 20 largest cities. But almost all have heard of Windsor, Ontario, Canada. Why? Because it's across the Detroit River from the city of Detroit and a major thoroughfare for entering and exiting Canada. Now, Windsor is the southernmost city in Canada and has a population of over 200,000. And because of its proximity to Detroit, it is known as the automotive capital of Canada. And it was there in August of 1965 that Eileen Edwards was born. When Eileen was two, her parents divorced and her mom soon remarried. They were dirt poor when she grew up and food was often scarce in their house. Her stepdad and mom fought incessantly. And one particularly violent night, her stepdad beat her mom unconscious and continued to repeatedly plunge her head in the toilet. Eileen said, I ran up behind my dad with a chair in both hands and smashed it across his back. Before I could get away, he punched me in the jaw. Adrenaline pumping, I punched him back. Well, they moved out of the house and in again as her mother threatened to leave repeatedly while she battled her own chronic depression. Well, despite her home situation, Eileen learned how to sing and play the guitar. At a young age, she performed, sometimes in bars, to earn extra money for her family. And when she graduated from high school, she was eager to leave and expand her musical horizons. So she joined a cover band, took singing lessons to improve her technique, and cleaned houses on the side to earn the needed money to pay the rent. Soon, she started to get noticed and took a job singing background vocals for popular artists. Country singer Mary Bailey saw Eileen perform in Ontario and said, I saw this girl up on stage with a guitar and it blew me away. Her voice reminded me of Tanya Tucker. It had strength and character. She's going to be a star and deserves an opportunity. At the age of 22, Eileen's parents were suddenly killed in an accident when their car collided with a logging truck, and this left Eileen to be the sole supporter of her younger siblings. She said, at that point in my life, 
Honestly, I would have preferred to have gone with my parents. The responsibility was too much to handle. But she did handle it and became a fighter and survivor. And once her siblings were out on their own, Eileen returned to her passion, music. She assembled a demo tape of her songs, and a few record labels noticed. Soon, she released her first album in 1993, and it reached number 67 on the U.S. country album chart. And that got her noticed by the big labels. With a new producer, a few years later, she released her second album, and the first single on that album was called Whose Bed Have Your Boots Been Under? And it went to number 11 on the country charts. Then, another song on that album went number one. It was entitled Any Man of Mine. Soon, the album had sold more than 12 million copies in the U.S., and her talent as a songwriter and performer came to light. Now, before releasing those albums, Eileen Edwards changed her name to Shania Twain. And in 1997, her newly released album, Come On Over, became a monster country pop crossover album. It peaked at number two on the Billboard 200 and stayed there for two years. Her popularity shot through the stratosphere along with her net worth. But then in 2003, Shania started having problems with her vocal cords. She would sing and be unable to hold a note or navigate the changes in her voice needed to perform. After several rounds of diagnosis by some of the best doctors in the world, they finally determined that there was nerve damage that was causing the problem. Well, this caused Shania great concern. How did it happen? Had she had a stroke? What was the cause? Well, when she asked the doctor what could have caused the damage, the doctor rattled off a list of common causes. The third item on the doctor's list was Lyme disease. She said, did you say Lyme disease? And the doctor replied, yes. She then told the doctor that a few years earlier, she was horseback riding in Norfolk, Virginia, when she was bitten by a tick. Now, when you have tick bites, it's not uncommon for the effects to emerge years later, even if you've been previously cured of the disease. Well, after her initial tick bite, Twain was dizzy and didn't know what was the cause of her poor health. So she was treated with an antibiotic and thought that was the end of her Lyme disease until years later. Now, Twain has since had numerous vocal cord surgeries, which have helped her regain some of the dynamics in her voice. Well, according to the CDC, tick-borne diseases are on the rise, with more than 50,000 cases reported in 2019. Lyme disease, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, and alpha-gal syndrome are just a few of the most common diseases spread by ticks. In fact, the tiny blood-sucking critters can transmit a wider variety of bacteria, viruses, and parasites than any other anthropod, a category that includes not only ticks, but also insects, such as mosquitoes. Now, ticks don't have wings, so they can't fly. As larvae, they hang around in leaf piles looking for mice and birds, and they can acquire infections by feeding on infected hosts. Nymphs may attach to medium-sized animals like chipmunks, and adult ticks may latch onto larger ones like deer or dogs. And ticks typically spread disease by attaching to the skin of the host, which creates a wound. And while ticks are taking a blood meal, 
they spit their infected saliva into the wound. Adult female ticks may feed on a host for several days, which can increase the chances of picking up a pathogen the longer that they're attached. Now, I know some of you have been bitten by ticks and struggled to diagnose the effects from a tick bite. And all of us have, at some time or another, been bitten by another type of tick. And these ticks are often just as destructive. They live on their hosts, and they will leave lasting effects on you and me. What are these ticks? Well, there's a long list, but here's just a few. Skeptics, cynics, critics, pessimistics, caustics, erratics, egotistics, and dramatics. And I suppose another tick is also politics. You know, as the joke goes, politics is the most accurate word in English. It's made up of two parts. Part one is poly, meaning many, and part two is ticks, meaning blood-sucking insects. Well, I could go on, but when you let ticks like skeptics or caustics into your life, it seems they latch onto your thinking and mental well-being. And soon, your mindset is infected, and the diseases begin. These diseases impede your ability to focus on your goals, stick with your commitments, let go of the past, rise to your full potential, they slowly wear you down. And left untreated, they will soon keep the healthy things from coming into your life like they should. Now, when it comes to the insect ticks, one of the most unusual tick-borne illnesses is also one of the most difficult to diagnose. Alpha-gal syndrome is a type of food allergy to red meat and other products made from mammals. And in the U.S., the condition most often begins with a bite from a lone star tick. According to the Mayo Clinic, the tick bite transmits a sugar molecule called alpha-gal into the person's body, which can sometimes trigger an immune system reaction that eventually produces an allergic reaction to red meat, such as beef, pork, or lamb, or other mammalian products. Well, several years ago, Anna had gastric sleeve surgery. And after recovering, she was working in the garden. When she was done, she took a shower and was checking herself for ticks. And when she did, she found one that was dug into her skin. In fact, she could only see half of the tick. Well, she removed the tick and went about her day. The same thing happened again two times over the course of the next week. Soon, her hands and feet started to itch. And she got hives. And she was tired and dizzy and lightheaded and she had headaches, and her mind was in a fog. She thought she had eaten something to which she was allergic, and she couldn't figure out what was causing her illness. Then, one day, she saw a news story about ticks carrying a disease called alpha-gal. Well, her doctor confirmed that she did indeed have the disease, so she stopped eating meat. And her condition improved, but not all. She tried one solution after another with little success. And today, her life has become a journey of trying to find a way to effectively deal with the effects of tick bites. So, what about you? Do you have a lot of skeptics in your life? Or, like many of us, do you give in to the critics? And like Anna, learning to deal with the ticks in our life can be a bit of a journey. So, to help you with that journey, let's talk for a minute about how to deal with the ticks. Now, some of you may be starting or restarting a business, for example, and in that business, you deal with ticks. 
When you're talking to a new prospect for your business, you often face skeptics and pessimistics and critics. So how do you turn a skeptic to your side? And how do you bring them to your way of thinking? Well, turning skeptics into believers and critics into partners can be done. And learning the skill to do that is not only useful in sales and business, but also with kids, spouses, and a host of other people in our life. So here is the first principle to winning the skeptics and other ticks. Shut up and listen. Now, I've learned over the course of my life that this simple principle makes all the difference. It's been taught in a number of ways by some of the best teachers, including seek first to understand before being understood, or be interested before being interesting, or he who talks the most will get no one to listen. Regardless, the principle is the same. When you listen, you learn. So if you want to get the skeptics or critics to your side, you've got to understand their perspective. You see, most people listen with the intent to reply, not to understand. And as a result, they can only see things through their own filter. They approach others with their own frame of reference. And as a result, they relate to others less and never really get those skeptics to their side. Here's what I found. Often when I'm talking to a skeptic, I don't always know how to bring them to my side. But after listening, sometimes, oftentimes, that way to bring them over is revealed to me. It's in the listening that you gain your inspiration of how to persuade them. Here's a simple example. Not long ago, I was meeting with the leader of a foundation looking to support a few select nonprofit organizations like ours. As we sat down, I shut up and started to listen. I used positive questions and active listening to try to understand his perspective, and I learned a lot. His organization just didn't want to give. They wanted a true partner. His language was different than mine. His perspective was also different. And after a few minutes, I could tell he felt like I really understood where he was coming from and what he wanted. Then he started to ask me questions. Now, having paid attention, I used his language and spoke from his frame of reference, something I would not have done if I hadn't listened. And partway through asking me questions, I could tell he was sold. Until that point in time, their foundation had supported us in small ways. But after that conversation, we left as their major partner. Shut up and listen. Now, this is hard for some people because they can't resist the urge to elevate themselves or demonstrate they know stuff. But when you accept the fact that to move critics to your side, you don't have to know the most, you just have to know what is important to them. When you actively listen, you're still talking, but you're asking questions that lead you to their frame of reference. People who ask questions are often the smartest in the room because they have the humility to ask about what they don't know. People talk about improving their emotional intelligence, right? And the primary way to do this is to discover how other people view the same thing. I recently started leading a large organization, and I didn't know a lot about the industry. I told myself for six months I'm going to listen, ask questions, and seek to understand. Now, six months is a long time, but after six months, I was a better leader once I understood the view of those in the organization. 
You see, your words will tend to hold more weight with people when those people feel like you see things from their point of view. After all, you've proven that you care about understanding their point of view so it becomes easier for them to give you the benefit of the doubt. In research, time and again, effective active listening has been shown to result in one, stronger relationships, two, greater trust, three, more effective teamwork, four, enhanced decision-making, and five, greater productivity. Next, winning the skeptics, critics, or other ticks to your side is a matter of trust. And trust is a function of two characteristics, character and competence. You may have someone with extreme character on your team, but if they're not competent, you don't trust them to do what needs to be done. And on the other hand, you may have someone with exceptional competence, but without character, you can't trust them either. Now, competence in your language, your mannerisms, knowledge, posture, and other skills are absolutely necessary to conquer the critics. They'll trust you and follow you if they trust your competence. So how do you build competence? Well, each day, as you plan your day, Decide to work on one element of competence. Learn more about your product. Practice how you talk. Improve your knowledge. And over time, your competence will grow. And soon, so will your leadership. Because in the end, as Stephen Covey said, leadership is getting results in a way that inspires trust. Next, to bring the critics to your side, work on your authenticity. Have you ever known someone who uses jargon and buzzwords as they talk? These people believe that somehow they're using fancy lingo will convince others that they're good. It simply doesn't work that way. The nuance behind it is you don't have substance, so you need to use buzzwords. Leave the buzzwords and clever statements to someone else. Don't be too scripted. Be yourself. And tell the skeptics of your own experience and what you've learned. If it's true, share your own early skepticism about what you've learned in the process. Speak naturally, humbly, and be willing to let your personality show. Then bring all the authenticity and evidence you can to the conversation. You know, numbers don't lie. Skeptical prospects typically see your point when it's backed by cold, hard data. And be specific. For example, instead of saying... Most customers buy more than the threshold required for a discount. You may say instead, the average customer purchases 2.3 times the amount required to earn a discount. The latter, by using exact data, is more authentic and credible. And by the way, nothing erodes authenticity more than not directly answering a question. Tangents and misdirection make them think you're hiding something. So answer questions directly and genuinely. And remember, rapport is not enough to bring skeptics to your side. People see through rapport and again assume you don't have substance to offer. Next, you must make sure what the skeptic or critic or pessimistic person deems as important is clearly valued by you. I found that skeptic people are willing to see things from another point of view when you don't stake out positions, but rather give them a place in the conversation where their opinion is valued. You know, Nelson Mandela was credited 
with the most successful negotiation in history. Long before that negotiation, he was sentenced to prison for life, most of the time on Robben Island. He spent decades in prison. He seemingly had no negotiating leverage. The guards held all the institutional power. And among the various indignities Mandela faced when he first got to the island included being only allowed short pants. Long pants were a privilege only allowed to white prisoners and one thin blanket in a cold cell. Well, within five years, he had not only negotiated long pants and multiple blankets, the guards had built him and his fellow prisoners a tennis court. Well, after Mandela turned 70 years old, it became obvious to the new National Party leader, F.W. de Klerk, that apartheid was unsustainable in the country. Apartheid means apartness, and it was the name of a policy for the white minority and non-white majority of South Africa. It dictated where South Africans could, based on their race, live, work, and be educated, and whether they could vote. Well, de Klerk called his cabinet together to debate freeing Mandela. Some were deeply against it. And while this started a very tumultuous time, the decision was eventually made to release Mandela. And a few years later, Mandela and de Klerk would begin negotiations to find a way to bring peace to their land. Well, Mandela had skeptics all around him. The extremists from his own party criticized him for talking to de Klerk. The opposite party violently opposed his positions. However, a critical piece of Mandela's negotiation strategy one that sets him apart from most others, is that he put enormous effort into legitimizing his opposition. This is the exact opposite of what most political negotiators do. You see, Mandela understood that to get the people with the guns to give up the power, he had to convince them that they would be safe after doing so. And this meant that the Afrikaner people, whites of Dutch descent, were an African tribe who were as legitimately African as he or any other black African. Going all the way back to the Ravonia trial in 1962, Mandela stated that he would give his life to fight white domination and black domination. You see, he succeeded because he convinced the white government and even the far-right opposition that they were not only safe, but also had a future in a democratic South Africa. So like Mandela, to bring skeptics to your side, you need to give them a place to be validated. And this includes your children. Winning the skeptic or pessimistic child requires that their view, no matter how immature you may think it is, is valued. And the kind of trust needed to sway a child isn't done in a single conversation. It takes time. And I found that example far and above anything else, wins your child to your cause. And when they see that you practice what you preach, they trust you more. You know, parents who keep promises under every condition are honest even about mistakes and listen, tend to bring even erratic and moody children back to their side. But one thing that helps, that works exceptionally well with children, is this. Don't be a tick yourself. Never criticize or be a critic. Don't criticize your children to their face, to your spouse, to anyone. They may never hear it, but they will see it and feel it. You know, criticism is dangerous 
because it wounds a person's sense of self. It hurts their sense of importance and arouses resentment. And any fool can criticize, condemn, and complain, and most fools do. But it takes character and self-control to be understanding and forgiving. To win a child to your side, never criticize. Now, I've been around people who criticize, and they justify it, saying their criticism is to teach a lesson or to help others improve. You know what? I don't believe that ever works. It just erodes. It erodes trust, confidence, and a willingness to change. Carnegie said, remember, when you're dealing with people, you're not dealing with creatures of logic. You're dealing with creatures of emotion, creatures bristling with prejudices and motivated by price and vanity. He was right. When you're dealing with people, you're dealing with emotion. Now, Robert Cialdini wrote a book about the psychology of persuasion, and it's one of my favorite books that I've ever read. Now, he argues there are several tactics to win people to your side and influence them. So, in addition to the principles we've just discussed, here's a few of Cialdini's tactics. First, Ellen Langer, a well-known principle of human behavior, says that when we ask someone to do us a favor, we'll be more successful if we provide a reason. People simply like to have reasons for what they do. Langer demonstrated this by asking a small favor of people waiting in line to use a library copying machine. Excuse me, she said, I have five pages. May I use the Xerox machine because I'm in a rush? Well, the effectiveness of this request that included a reason was impressive. 94% of those let her skip ahead of them in line. Now compare this success rate to the results when she made the request by saying only, excuse me, I have five pages. May I use the Xerox machine? Under those circumstances, only 60% of those complied. Well, at first glance, it appears that the crucial difference between the two requests was the additional information provided by the words, because I'm in a rush. But a third type of request tried by Langer showed that this was not the case. It seems it wasn't the whole series of the words, but only one word, the word because, that made all the difference. Now, I've tested this theory, and it works. When people know why you're building a business, or your children understand why there is a rule, they're much more apt to comply. For example, even telling a customer why you are passionate about the safer products that you're selling has an impact on their likelihood to be less skeptical. Next tactic. Suppose a man enters a fashionable men's store and says that he wants to buy a three-piece suit and a sweater. If you were the salesperson, which would you show him first to make him likely to spend the most money, the suit or the sweater? Will clothing stores instruct their sales personnel to sell the most costly item first? Common sense might suggest the reverse. If a man has just spent a lot of money to purchase a suit, he may be reluctant to spend very much on anything more, like the purchase of a sweater. But the clothiers know better. Sell the suit first. Because when it comes time to look at sweaters, even expensive ones, the prices of the sweaters do not seem as high in comparison to the suit. A man might balk at the idea of spending $95 for a sweater at first, but if he has just bought a $495 suit, a $95 sweater does not seem excessive. 
Now, this is an important principle of selling the skeptic. Use comparisons to help them release their grip on their view and move in your direction. Next tactic. A few years ago, a university professor tried a little experiment. He sent Christmas cards to a sample of perfect strangers. Then holiday cards addressed to him came pouring back from the people who had never met nor heard of him. The great majority of those who returned a card never inquired into the identity of the unknown professor. You see, they received the greeting card and automatically sent one in return. Now, this illustrates the rule of reciprocity. The rule says that we try to repay in kind what another person has provided us. If a woman does a favor, we should do her one in return. If a man sends us a birthday present, we often remember his birthday with a gift of our own. If a couple invites us to a party, we often are sure to invite them to one of ours. Now, the same goes for bringing skeptics and critics to your side. They're more likely to be open if there is reciprocity involved. The next tactic is social proof. Experiments have found that when TV shows play taped applause, it causes an audience to laugh longer and more often and to rate the material as funnier. When others are doing what you are asking skeptics to do, you will have more influence. Cialdini points to the Tupperware company as an example of using these tactics to woo skeptics. He says at a Tupperware party, the first tactic used is reciprocity. To start, games are played and prizes are won by the partygoers. And anyone who doesn't win a prize gets to reach into a grab bag for her prize so that everyone has received a gift before the buying begins. Next, commitment. Each participant is urged to describe publicly the benefits that she's found in the Tupperware that she already owns. And next, social proof. Once the buying begins, it soon becomes clear that similar people want the product. Therefore, it must be good. And perhaps the most powerful tactic of persuasion of all this is the fact that the request to purchase the product doesn't come from the presenter. It comes from a friend who knows every person in the room. You see, the party host, who has called her friends together for the demonstration in her home, makes a profit from each piece sold at her party. And by providing the hostess with a percentage of the take, Tupperware arranges for its customers to buy from and for a friend rather than an unknown salesperson. In this way, the attraction, the warmth, the security, the obligation of friendship are brought to bear in the sales setting. Now, research has shown that the strength of the social bond is twice as likely to determine a product purchase as is the preference for the product itself. So, as you face the ticks in your life and seek to bring them to your side, to your view, to successfully help your prospects and children and others in your life buy into what you are doing, remember, shut up and listen. Use questions to guide the direction of the discussion, but make sure the skeptics and critics feel understood. Then talk to them in their language and from their point of view. Next, when building trust, competence and character are the essential ingredients. Become good, competent at what you do. Have command of the facts. 
and use facts when applicable to build credibility. Next, be authentically you. Authenticity is more powerful than talent or know-how. Leave the buzzwords and clever statements to someone else. And remember, skeptics will listen to you if you are genuine. And when it comes to kids and critics, remember Nelson Mandela. He succeeded in the most famous negotiation in history by giving others a safe place to land. And remember Cialdini's principles of persuasion include telling them why, reciprocity, and social proof. And watch, your ability to win the ticks in your life will improve. Most of all, thanks for being here today. We'll talk about the next steps to opening your eyes in a future podcast. And I look forward to being with you again soon.